Welcome to Human Circus. I'm going to start this story at the end. Marco Polo comes home in 1295, a man of 41 or 42 years. And maybe we shouldn't really call it coming home, because he'd been away for about 24 of those years, longer than he'd ever lived in Venice. Anyways, he comes back, and pretty quickly he's in trouble again. The details are a little murky here, but somehow, somewhere, he's taken prisoner by the Genoese. Maybe they get him at the Battle of Laazzo, but that seems too early. Or maybe it's Corzola, but that seems too late. One writer gives up entirely on being exact and has him, quote, taken prisoner at some obscure and otherwise unrecorded engagement of armed merchantmen in 1296. The details don't really matter, though. What's important is that he is a prisoner. And we probably shouldn't picture a barren cell rounded out by beatings and bad food here. His was more the imprisonment of a gentleman kept for ransom, likely enjoying some freedom but not beyond the city walls. Marco did not pass his time alone. He spent it in the company of Arusticello da Pisa, a writer of Franco-Italian Arthurian romance, and together they wrote the travels of Marco Polo. Marco narrated the events and spoke of the many wondrous people and places he had seen, and Rusticello recorded his words, glued them together, and provided the stylistic flourishes that at times echoed his own Arthurian stories. Or at least, that's how the story goes. Maybe at the time of the 1299 peace with Genoa, maybe some other time, Marco was freed to again return to Venice. There, he lived a fairly unremarkable life. He'd had all his adventures already. He seems to have been comfortable. He married up to the daughter of a more prestigious family than his own and he had three daughters who likewise married into the elite. He inherited money, lent money, sometimes he lent to relatives who he then had to bring legal action against for failure to repay, and he engaged in business ventures in musk and other goods. And of course, he received visitors, people who came for the book. Marco is not going to die in obscurity, only to have his work gain new life after his own had ended. As I mentioned at the end of last episode, the book was widely translated and transcribed even within his own lifetime, and we know that Pietro de Bano of the University of Padua came to consult with him, and also Thibaut de Chepois, a representative of Charles of Valois, to obtain a copy of that book. But obscurity or not, Marco did die. During the night of Sunday the 8th of January, 1324, he died and he was buried at the church of San Lorenzo. But that was not the end of his story, and besides, we have some catching up to do. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it on iTunes, and perhaps also sign up to the Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. For that is how we avoid being scooped up by giant birds and sent crashing to the ground like helpless elephants. You can find information about the Patreon and all other things Human Circus related at humancircuspodcast.com. Now, back to the story and to the conclusion of our Marco Polo series. 
Today, I'll be talking about two journeys, that of a book and that of a man making his way back to Venice after many years away. When Marco Polo died, he did not leave behind mountains of gems, jewels, and expensive exotica. There had been substantial losses on the return trip, and in the end, the spoils of his two decades abroad, though tantalizing, were not chests of rubies and sacks of silver, at least as far as we can tell. There were, however, silks, including quite expensive ones that had Mongol designs worked into them with gold thread and other materials. There was a Buddhist rosary. There was the silver belt of a Mongol noble, the tall headdress of a Mongol woman complete with pearls and gold, and the golden tablet of authority that the Khan had given to him. Aside from his Mongol slave, who we know as Pietro, and who Marco released when he made his will, there was nothing else to show for having been to the other end of the continent, and been, by his own account at least, someone pretty important there. He didn't exactly end his life in poverty, though. His household included 24 beds, and his share of the polo property had grown. At the time of his death, his holdings included stocks of musk, horsehair, silk, and white silk cocoons intended for sale. His purse was full of silver, and there actually was a chest of silver, too. He left behind respectably pious donations, and the rest to his daughters and to his wife. But unless you were his daughter or his wife, that really wasn't his legacy. The legacy was the book. The book traveled far, and it started to take on different forms. By the 16th century, you apparently had one manuscript that was a Tuscan translation of a Latin translation of a Tuscan translation of the Franco-Italian in which the original is thought to have been written. And this is an extreme example, but it didn't take anything so dramatic for the text to change. Sometime in the years before 1314, while Marco himself was still alive... Francesco Peppino of Bologna was directed by his Dominican superiors to produce a Latin translation of the text. And in his preface, he made his purpose clear. Quote, Let none deem this task to be vain and unprofitable, he said, for I am of the opinion that the perusal of the book by the faithful may merit an abounding grace from the Lord in contemplating the variety, beauty, and vastness of God's creation, as herein displayed in his marvelous works. The book was cast as one of marvels, then, yes, but as the varied marvels of God's earth, and of course the reader was not intended only to idly ponder such great diversity. Peppino hoped also that the, quote, sloth of undevout Christians may be put to shame when they see how much more ready the nations of the unbelievers are to worship their idols. Moreover, he continued, the hearts of some members of the religious orders may be moved to strive for the diffusion of the Christian faith and by divine aid to carry the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, forgotten among so vast multitudes, to those blinded nations among whom the harvest is indeed so great, and the laborers so few. It was a great big world, and of its population, Christians were coming to realize that they made up a smaller percentage than they ever would have thought possible. It was time, Papino urged, to go out and do something about it. Of course, as the purpose changed, so followed the text. The chivalric style of the original was replaced. The opening passage directed at emperors, kings, and dukes was gone, and so were others. The chapters were reorganized, 
and non-Christian religions became hemmed in by new descriptors. They were wretched, abominable, or wicked. There was to be no question as to impartiality or cosmopolitanism when it came to religious matters in this book. And this wasn't the only alteration the text underwent. One 15th century Irish Gaelic rendition slapped on an origin story of a Francesco the Franciscan having translated the book from an original Mongol version, and it really put some sparkles on the battle scenes too. Different versions featured magnificent illustrations that seemed to spring from an illuminator's lazy scanning for key terms, or just from their expectations as to what a book of the East should contain, rather than from the text itself. Still others might lead you to believe the book to be the work of, quote, a gentleman of Venice who went sailing there with his four sons, descendants one after the other. The text could be found bound up with the romance of Alexander and Jean de Mondeville, or with Odoric of Pordenone and other travelers to the east. The variations were many, and you'll find if you read the travels of Marco Polo now that the footnotes will be full of references to how version X gives Y date as being ten years earlier. For these reasons and more, it's been said that it's more accurate to speak of the books of Marco Polo than it is the book. If those books may at first have been greeted with some measure of disbelief or bound up with romances... In the early decades of the 14th century, an increase in merchant and missionary traffic connected Europeans to China, developing small communities there and bearing witness to the truth of this grand civilization beyond the Muslims and the Asian steppe. There were Franciscan houses in Zaitong, Hangzhou, and Yangzhou. There was a community of Genoese merchants at Yangzhou, where the gravestones of one family's son and daughter have been found. There was a church in the Yuan capital, built there by a Venetian merchant named Pietro. Though the situation would not last, letters and travelers returned home from these trips, confirming much of what Marco had seen, and moving the text solidly away from pure fantasy. Given all of this, it's interesting then to find a Florentine transcriber in 1392, who explains that he has copied down the book, quote, to pass the time and to keep melancholy away, since these seem to me incredible things, and what he, Marco Polo, says, seems to me not so much lies as more than miracles. And yet, what he speaks of could be true, but I don't believe it, though in the world one finds very different things from one country to another. But these, it seems to me, though I've enjoyed copying them, are things not to be believed, nor to give faith to, so it seems to me. At the end of the 14th century, as with now, there were those who were not convinced by Marco's wild tales. Christopher Columbus, on the other hand, does seem to have been convinced. His copy of the book is peppered with marginal notes on gold in the greatest abundance, infinite spices, much incense, and more. But we're getting ahead of ourselves now. We know that the books traveled far and wide. We've seen them in the shops or on our own shelves. What about Marco himself? What brought him back from China? The question of what caused Marco Polo to return to his estranged birthplace is an open one. Why then? Why at all? A few answers present themselves. It's been suggested by John Mann that Marco may have lost someone close to him in China. A courtesan, perhaps, and no longer had anything tying him there. The Venetian was no monk, and people loved to muse over his potential relationships. 
especially in connection with the Princess Kokuchin. Others have suggested that the Polos sensed the imminent demise of their patron, Kublai. The Khan's wife and favorite son had died. He was suffering health problems, likely tied to his increasing weight and alcoholism. And, though still staggeringly powerful, he was reeling from one failure to another, at home and abroad. The end could not be far off, and the Polos may have decided that they did not wish to remain without his protection, and with the prospect of being caught up in a potentially bloody Mongol succession. Or perhaps Kublai's love was like an excessively drunk friend's embrace. Pleasant at first, but then suffocating, and exponentially less so and the polo simply leapt at a timely opportunity to disentangle themselves. Here, I'm going to tell you the story that Marco and Rusticello concocted, or at least the one that has been transmitted down to me. But first, a quick break. According to the text, the Polos were feeling more and more that they had stayed long enough, that their wealth was great enough, that they would very much like to make the return journey, and that, quote, however honored and caressed by the Khan, this sentiment was ever predominant in their minds. So they were looking for a way out. They were pondering how they might extricate themselves from this luxurious prison. They were waiting for opportunities, and they had a deadline. They didn't know when exactly the clock would run out, but they could see the Khan deteriorating, and they worried about how they would get home without his support. The book says that they considered his help absolutely necessary, that were he to die before they could make their journey, then they would not get another chance. They needed Kublai to be on their side in this, while he was still around to do so. It was Marco's father, Niccolo, who made the approach. He waited for a day when Kublai seemed most especially cheerful, and you can imagine, this was not a comfortable wait. He's maybe keeping an eye on the Khan. How is his mood today? How much has he had to drink? What news has he had? Has anyone angered him? And all the while, time ticks along. Kublai gets a little older, and they're still waiting to leave. Finally, Niccolo picks a time that seems good to him. He throws himself at the Khan's feet and makes his plea for His Majesty's gracious permission for their departure. However, for all of Niccolo's care, he had not chosen the right time, and maybe there was never going to be a right time, because Kublai Khan did not give his gracious permission. He seems instead to have been rather hurt that they should have considered leaving at all. Why would they want to go and risk themselves on such a difficult journey? What could there be for them out there in the world that he could not provide right then and there? Was it wealth or honor? If so, he would gladly grant them whatever they could wish for. But out of his respect for the Polos, he could only refuse their petition to leave. So, they were still looking for a way out. Of course, this is all a little hard to swallow now, these heaping mounds of self-glorification wrapped in hardship that Marco ladled on. Were they really so beloved by the Khan that he could not bear to part with them? Maybe they were. They'd been around for two decades now, and would eventually come home with at least some kind of endorsement in the form of those golden tablets. Perhaps they really were such personal favorites. 
Either way, they apparently needed a good reason to leave. And this needs a bit of consideration itself. Marco Polo often seems entirely free to do as he pleases in the travels. At least, he claims to have moved about quite independently within the Khan's domains. What was to stop him and his family from going where they wished? From the riches they are said to have gained, they should have been able to afford the costs of the trip. And they were experienced travelers, too, not novices. It seems, though, that for at least Marco, if not the other Polos, the situation was not unlike that of a soldier bound to serve his lord. John Mann has suggested that this could have been exactly what he was. And if he was free to roam his lord's realm, he was not so free as to be able to strike off on his own without penalty. When that good reason the Polos had been waiting for first arrived, Marco was away on one of these wanderings. An embassy had arrived from Kublai's great-nephew, Argun Khan, grandson of Hulugu, and lord of the Ilkhanate. Argun had sent a request. His wife, Bolagon Katun, had died in 1286, first making known her last wish that none should replace her but one of her own family. Now, Argun's ambassadors had arrived at the Khan's court to make good on her wish. It's a somewhat odd story particularly when you consider that Argun had several other consorts already, and would add another also named Bologan Katun before his ambassadors could even return. However, the idea that he would have sought another woman of royal Mongol lineage, of Genghisid heritage, is certainly plausible enough, and there are other sources that refer to the marriage, and to the embassy. At first, all of this had nothing to do with our Venetian friends. Kublai greeted his great-nephew's men with honor and hospitality, and a woman was sent for, a seventeen-year-old whose name was Kokuchin, and you've probably come across her before. In tellings of Marco's story, few writers seem able to resist her as a love interest for Marco, but really, the text gives us no reason to think she was any such thing. She was, however, described variously in the two translations I'm looking at here as, quote, beautiful and charming, and handsome and accomplished, and the ambassadors, upon meeting her, highly approved. All was made ready for their departure, and the attendants were chosen to form a suitable escort for an Ilkhan's consort. Kublai Khan saw them off in great style. They set off back the way the embassy had come, over land, and if all had gone well, they would have ridden right out of our story, and maybe the Polos never would have found their reason to return. But all did not go well. Just as had been the case for Niccolo and Maffeo all those years earlier, there was war in the way. Having traveled for eight months, the text reads, their further progress was obstructed and the roads shut up against them by fresh wars that had broken out amongst the Mongol princes. Much against their inclinations, therefore, they were constrained to adopt the measure of returning to the court of the Grand Khan, to whom they stated the interruption they had met with. The text is no more specific, but these fresh wars very likely involved Kaidu of the house of Ogadai, or Dawa, the Chagatayad Khan he had appointed. From a distance of seven centuries, Kaidu's whole life appears one of restlessness and struggle, a consistent effort of the body, mind, and will against his cousins in Yuan China and the Ilkhanate. And around this time, he was also fighting to support his pick for Batu's old throne. 
Somewhere, in all that constant exertion, the ambassador's path home was blocked. There was to be no Pax Mongolica for them, no easily hopping along the much-praised relay network with its rest houses and fresh horses. So back to Kublai they went, doubtless adding another little grain of irritation to his lifelong grievance against his cousin, and back into the path of the Polos. It happened that Marco was also returning to the Khan at that time, with much to tell him of all that he'd seen. He'd been away on one of his wanderings, this time on the seas of Southeast Asia, which he reported were safely navigable. And of course the news, when it reached the ears of the Ilkhan ambassadors, was extremely interesting. The Khan had a man who was familiar with the seaways south. They had been three years gone from home, and if they were not to go by land, then perhaps they might return by water. They reached out to the Venetians, and a confluence of interests began to form. The ambassadors needed a safe trip home with Kokuchin, and the Polos a pressing reason to go. Both parties wished to convince the Khan that they should be allowed to go together. Maybe the Polos simply agreed to accompany them home, without going into their own issues at all. But I like to imagine here a series of furtive meetings on how best to proceed with their cause. Who knew what fits of vexation might result if the Polos bothered Kublai again with the same question? This time, it was agreed that the Ilkhanids would make their approach with Kokuchin and point out, quote, with what convenience and security they might affect their return by sea to the dominions of their master, Kublai's great nephew, how much less expensive it would be to dispatch them in this way, and how much swifter, too. Once they had the Khan's agreement on this, they would turn to the topic of the Polos, for Kokuchin's voyage would be far safer in the company of a fellow like Marco, who had so recently sailed south. The Ilkhanids got their audience, they made their requests, and the Khan pulled a face. As the most powerful ruler of his time, I don't imagine he was much in the habit of needing to conceal his feelings on anything much at all, and he did not disguise his displeasure at what was being asked of him. The idea of parting with the Polos was exceedingly displeasing to him, as he'd already made abundantly clear. However, constrained by politeness and the importance and urgency of the case, the Khan agreed. He would let his beloved Venetians go from his grip. And I feel I must interrupt the story here to rein on Marco Polo's extra-special self-importance parade a little. We've seen in the last episode how developed the trading networks were between China and India. It seems really unlikely that there was nobody about who could equal Marco in navigating the oceans they were to sail. However, to be fair, it is possible that there was nobody about in the court at that particular moment, no known quantities or figures of real standing, who would be suitable to escort a member of Mongol royalty, and also be familiar with large parts of the route. So maybe, maybe, but even that seems unlikely. It is worth noting that Rashid al-Din and Yuan sources would both speak of this mission to deliver Kokuchin to the Ilkhan, though admittedly neither would mention the Polos by name. The text has Kublai Khan grudgingly calling them before him for one last audience. He greets them with warmth and reassures them of his lasting love and regard. He provides them with a golden tablet, those passports which granted free, safe, and well-supplied passage throughout his realms. 
he made them promise that once they had spent some time with their family, they would return to him immediately. Finally, he either granted them authority to act as his ambassadors to the Pope and kings of Europe, or he attached men to their party for that purpose. It depends on the version you're reading. At last, having given their word that they would not be leaving him forever, the party was ready. A fleet was prepared for them of thirteen or fourteen ships. At least four or five of those were large enough to carry crews of two hundred and fifty, and four masts, while the others were perhaps the smaller boats mentioned elsewhere in the text that would work as pods around the larger vessels and tow them where necessary. Marco is, for what it's worth, very complimentary of these boats, speaking highly of their construction and maintenance. They were made of fir timber, fastened with good iron nails, and sealed with a substance made by kneading together hemp fibers with wood oil and lime. There were fifty to sixty cabins, and there were thirteen watertight compartments within the hull, in case of leaks, caused, Marco helpfully adds, by running on a rock or by the blow of a hungry whale. On the Khan's orders, they were provisioned for two years, and rubies and gems given to them as gifts. And then they embarked. It was around the beginning of 1291, and Kublai, for all his insistence that they return, was never going to live long enough to see if his uncaged birds would come back to him. In just a moment, we'll follow the Venetians, Ilkenids, and Kokuchin on their way south and then west. But first, a quick pause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Marco text covers this journey in the barest of detail. Offering, for example, that after three months of navigation, they arrived at Sumatra, but leaving the rest for elsewhere in the book. We know from elsewhere in this series how Marco found it splintered into kingdoms, each with their own language, how he was struck at being so far south he could no longer see the North Star, and how he noticed a clear difference between the coastal populations, often Muslim, and the hill peoples, often cannibals. Marco and company were detained on Sumatra by weather, waiting for the winds to change, and they observed the trade in spices and wood. They witnessed those hideously ugly unicorns, and they drank excellent wine, fit to cure dropsy and spleen. For five months they waited, and then they sailed on, west across the Bay of Bengal, and then northwest along the Indian coast and the Arabian Sea, encountering many things that were strange to them. They saw fine cotton cloths that put them in mind of spiders' webs. They saw how the bodies of great lords were burnt upon death, and that his attendants threw themselves upon the same fire, saying, quote, that they had been his comrades in this world, and that they ought also to keep him company in the other world. They saw temples in which families could consecrate their daughters, 
presenting them to their gods, and where the monks would call on the girls to make a banquet and dance before the gods, leaving the meat a respectable length of time, until it was said to have been consumed by the deities, and then taking it away to eat. They saw people who Marco deemed members of a class of idol-worshipping Brahmin, chugi in his words, or yogis. These people ate only a little, mostly rice and milk, and drank twice a month a strange potion of sulfur and quicksilver that granted them their long lives. 150 to 200 years, Marco reported. He went on that they went naked, wearing only a small ornament tied about their forehead, that they daubed themselves with a powder made of burnt cow dung, and that they ate not from bowls, but from leaves, and of those, never green leaves. For green leaves were said to still contain a soul, and it would be a sin to eat from them. In some versions of the text, the description continues in a rather more judgmental tone. Quote, they are such cruel and perfidious idolaters that it is very devilry. They say that they burn the bodies of the dead, because if they were not burnt, worms would be bred, which would eat the body. And when no more food remained for them, these worms would die, and the soul belonging to that body would bear the sin and the punishment of their death. And that is why they burn their dead. That opening exclamation seems very much the sort of thing that Francesco Papino might have written into the account. For eighteen months they sailed the waters around India, and they didn't have it all their own way. On the contrary, the death toll was severe, particularly so in some versions of the text. One has only eight surviving, of an initial company of six hundred, sailors not included, a real bloodbath, while the rather more reasonable version has six hundred total dying, including two of the three Ilkhanid ambassadors. I keep talking about medieval travelers who made it home on this podcast. Funny how the chronicles are all written by people who survived. But it's moments like this that are a helpful reminder of what kind of enterprise long-distance travel was at this time. It meant years away from home at best, and a pretty good likelihood of death by disease or violent misadventure while you were out there. Really, I should do a series on travelers who didn't make it. Mini-episodes, maybe. Of course, we already know that's not what happened to Marco. The Polos, Kokochin, and that sole surviving ambassador arrived safely at their destination, often thought to be Hormuz at the narrows between the Gulf of Oman and the Persian Gulf. They got there, but they found that they were too late. They were like waiters trucking out long-delayed dishes from the kitchen, only to find that their frustrated customer had in the meantime moved on. Kokochin's fiancé, the one who had sent his ambassadors all the way to Great Uncle Kublai in China, was dead. Argun was the grandson of Hulagu, great-great-grandson of Genghis Khan, and the fourth Ilkhan. And I'm not going to do him justice here. If you're an Argun fan, though, be reassured that I will be returning to him sometime down the road, that there's another story he'll be part of. For now, know that he'd sent away for a royal consort, and that he had, in the meantime, been convinced by an Indian monk to take a steady course of those mercury and sulfur mixes which were said to prolong life. Eight months of that program, and he became ill and died in 1291. And maybe it hadn't even been his unfortunate new diet plan that had killed him. There is talk that it was murder, but it's certainly a tempting enough theory. So when our travelers arrived, all was not quite as they'd expected. Likely their arrival was not quite expected. 
Argun's eldest son, Gazan, was still young to occupy the throne, or so the text tells us. But Gazan had been twenty years old when his father had died, young, but not exactly an infant in need of a regent. It seems instead that circumstances had prevented Gazan from making the grab for power when the opportunity presented itself. Sometimes, just being close enough to the center of power, being the first qualifying candidate to apply for the job, is enough. And it was Gazan's uncle, Gaikatu, who filled the vacancy. Gazan did not challenge his uncle's rise to power. Relations, indeed, seemed to have been friendly between the two. And it was Gaikatu who received the travelers and directed them to escort Kokuchin on to Gazan. As it happened, that future seventh Ilkhan was in the northeast of their territory, with an army of 60,000 men, guarding the passes against any attacks from Kaidu's direction. And so there the Polos had to go, getting further now away from the city of Venice and likely wondering if they might ever be free to go there. Marco tells us that Gaikatu's rule was unpopular, perhaps considered illegitimate, and that they went to and from Gazan under heavy escort, for, quote, the people were disposed to commit insult and proceed to outrages, which they would not have dared to attempt under the rule of a proper sovereign. Still, despite threats and outrages from an unhappy populace, they brought Kokuchin at last to her new husband, though what she thought of it we do not know. She'd been dragged halfway around the world with no prospect of ever returning, and all to marry a man she had never met before. In some versions of the polo text, he says that she wept in sorrow when the Venetians left, and that's not impossible. After two years of travel, they were among the few familiar faces in her new life. But in a way, it's more about him than her. See how loved and respected our most wonderful narrator was among the Mongol royalty, the text seems to shout, and how none of them wished him to go. On their return journey, the Polos paused again at the court of Gaikatu, and there stayed for another nine months, and how long that must have seemed, now that they were so close to their destination. What could have held them there? Perhaps they were waiting for the best possible circumstances in which to depart. It was still not a journey to be taken lightly. Or maybe this was yet another Mongol ruler who found them simply too charming to be allowed to leave. Leave they did, though, going by way of Trebizond on the Black Sea. Marco doesn't say anything of it, but we know from other sources that they had a little trouble in the area. The Empire of Trebizond, a Byzantine successor state, was in the midst of a dispute with Venice, and the Polos were unlucky enough to happen into the middle of it. We know they would later claim to have had goods worth 4,000 Byzantine gold coins seized from them on the way through, and that by 1310, only 1,000 of that would have been regained. But when the time came to record his story, this didn't make it in. After that setback, it was on to Constantinople, to Negroponte, and at last, to Venice. It was 1295, and they had been gone for a quarter century. Who of their family would still have recognized them? There is a tradition recorded by the 16th century scholar Giambattista Ramusio that indeed no one did when they appeared on the doorstep. Like Odysseus, they were said to arrive unlooked for and unknown, and who could have blamed their skeptical relations? Here were three strangers of bizarre manner and garb, claiming to be family members long considered dead. 
They had an indescribable something of the Mongol in their aspect and in their way of speech, having forgotten most of the Venetian tongue. Those garments of theirs were much the worse for wear, and were made of coarse cloth, and cut after the fashion of the Mongols. Clearly, the polos weren't in the kind of fine silks to be found in Kublai's court. They were dressed for travel, and had traveled far. They would have been deeply foreign to their Venetian relatives, and looking very much more the impoverished conmen than long-lost kin. They were so foreign in appearance that, according to Ramusio, their family did not accept them at all. The polos actually had to withdraw and plan a new approach. They had to invite all involved to an enormous feast at which they paraded in their silken fineries, displayed multiple crimson wardrobe changes, and cut open their ragged clothes to let spill gems of great value and variety upon the table, all to the amazement of their guests. Then, in all that grandness, the guests were somehow convinced that they did after all recognize these good people as their noble friends of times past, that these were indeed the polos who had gone away. And maybe that wasn't quite how it happened, but one way or another, the returning polos were accepted into their family home and grew comfortable there, and they aged and did business, and one by one they died. First Niccolo, around the time of their arrival, then Maffeo in 1309, and then, as I said at the beginning, Marco Polo himself in 1324. By then, Gaikatu was dead, and Gazan, and Kokuchin too, and Kublai Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan and founder of the Yuan dynasty in China. He had died in 1294, when the Polos had not even yet completed their journey home. As for Marco, I want to read one last quotation from the book. It's the end of the prologue, the end of the story portion of the book, really, where the reader gets this tale of a trip to the Khan's China and back, once for Niccolo and Maffeo alone, and then once more with Marco. It reads, quote, The foregoing narrative may be considered as a preliminary chapter, the object of which is to make the reader acquainted with the opportunities Marco Polo had of acquiring a knowledge of the things he describes during a residence of so many years in the eastern parts of the world. Like travel narratives before and since, Marco Polo's takes pains to assert its own truth. You can believe this, it says. I have stepped on these shores and sailed these seas. I have seen these far-off places, observed their peoples, and spoken to their lords. And I have lived at the court of the greatest lord of them all, of Kublai Khan, Yuan Emperor. Believe me. Circus will return.